That was one minute of silence. How does that make you feel? A little weird. A little, a little awkward. Some giggles. Some random feedback from the microphone. Some creaks in the floor. We don't spend a lot of time in silence in our world. But that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Silence and solitude. So open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. If you're in the Pew Bible, we're going to be on page 887. And we will do some Q&R at the end. If you want to go to slido.com, you can type in RevCDA in the prompt and ask a question. Let me pray for us. Lord God, as we continue to think through these things that we call the spiritual disciplines, these practices that you have given to us in your grace to shape us into the image of Jesus, I pray that you would give us wisdom from your word. I pray that you would help us to be people that are um, hungry for more of you, that have an appetite for God and a desire to pursue Jesus through these things. Not because these things uh, will earn your favor or because we will be better than other people, but because we genuinely want to be close to you. God, I pray that as uh, we look at this passage in the life of Jesus, that we would recognize him as our role model, that if we are intent on being shaped into a person that models his character, that we need to live the way he lived. And I pray that you would just teach us and grow us in that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so silence, solitude. When we spent that just small amount of time a few minutes ago, how does that affect your soul? How does that affect your body, your mind? Do you begin to wander to kind of the architecture of the room? Do you awkwardly look at me because I'm supposed to be giving direction and I'm not saying anything, which is weird? Do you begin to think other thoughts? Did I leave the oven on this morning? Like, is that, does random things come into your mind? What, what happens when we are alone with ourselves? And this is the, the discipline of silence and solitude. Last week, we talked about Sabbath, or two weeks ago, I guess, we talked about Sabbath. And as a discipline for the pursuit of rest and trust in God, last week, we talked about fasting as a discipline that helps us gain mastery over our bodies and Silence and solitude is kind of a blending of these two ideas that helps us gain mastery over our interior life and experience God's peace. So we're going to look at this first episode of Jesus' ministry when he enters into a period of silence and solitude in the Gospel of Mark. This is a regular practice of Jesus throughout his ministry. And like all the other spiritual disciplines, it's picked up by the early church as a tool that we have been given for our transformation into Christ-likeness. And I want to take a look at three ways that silence and solitude shapes us. First of all, it clarifies our identity. Secondly, it amplifies temptation. 
And thirdly, it brings rejuvenation. First off, silence and solitude clarifies our identity. Identity is the answer to the question, who are you? Who are you? Our culture teaches us that we are responsible to give ourselves an identity. We alone can answer the question, who are you? Who am I? But the tricky part is is that identity is also always formed in relationship to other people. In his book, You Are Not Your Own, Alan Noble writes this. He says, a teenager listens to music that reflects and expresses her personality to other people, even though the lyrics are explicitly about rejecting the judgments and opinions of other people. A middle-aged man wears a shirt that reads, only God can judge me, but clearly wants you to judge him based on his shirt. We strive to independently define our identity, but we are always dependent upon others for the recognition of that identity. Do you ever catch yourself making decisions for the benefit of other people's perceptions of you? Maybe you did this this Thanksgiving weekend as family came over. Here's two examples of how bad I am as a human being. I often meet people in coffee shops and I have a bag that I carry with me. And it's always this decision in my mind, I'm going to set my bag down, am I going to leave the flap open or am I going to keep it closed? Because if I open it, there's a Bible in there and people might walk by and they'll go, oh, you have a Bible, you're so godly. But if I close it, I'll I'll keep people away from maybe thinking that I'm a Christian and I'm a hypocrite. and, and, And that's a really stupid conversation to have with yourself, but that's the one that I have with my bag at the coffee shop. Secondly, I, uh, I go to the gym. I try to go to the gym regularly, and I have this little app that tells me what to do because I don't, I don't know how to work out. So I, every, every day I get a new list of an order of machines that I'm supposed to use at the gym, and I go from machine to machine to machine, and it tells me my, how much weight to use and how many reps to do. And sometimes I read the app incorrectly, and I sit down at the wrong machine. And what a a normal person should do is go, oh, I made a mistake. I'm going to get up and go to the right machine. But what I do is I figure out how to work out at that machine because I don't want people to think I'm crazy for sitting down at a machine and not actually using it and then walking away like an idiot. This is what goes on in my mind all the time because my identity is shaped by the people around me. And it's confusing and it's stressful But whether we think about it actively or not, this is our default mode of being in the world. And so then we come to this story, one of the first stories in the Gospel of Mark, and we read in verse 9, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. So Jesus' baptism is the inauguration of his ministry and the affirmation of his identity. Now, Jesus, the Son of God, is eternal, right? He's he's one of the members of the eternal trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have existed forever before time began. So his identity isn't created at his baptism, But what we're meant to understand in the Gospels is that through his baptism, Jesus is officially taking on the mantle 
the role of Messiah, the, the Jewish anointed one. He's given a job. And we see in his baptism that the father announces Jesus' identity. Jesus has an identity in relation to the crowd now as the father's beloved son, but more importantly, this is Jesus' identity in relation to the father himself. The father gives Jesus his identity. He is who he is because God says so. See, God, in contrast to what our culture tells us, is the author of our identity. You are who you are at your most basic in relationship to him. We have many different identities. We Father, son, mother, daughter, employee, boss, teacher, student, and those are all fine, but they are secondary to our identity in relation to God. And on top of that, we tend to give ourselves other identities that aren't always so good, aren't always so helpful. I'm a man's man, a classy woman, a bookworm, too cool for whatever those people are doing. I'm the fun one, the responsible one, the smart one, the hip one. You probably have multiple identities that you take on depending on what groups of people you are with. But we see here that Jesus is given his identity by the Father. And immediately, God the Spirit drives him into the wilderness, drives him into silence and solitude. Why is that? Because silence and solitude removes all of our methods for creating our own false identity. Henry Nouwen writes, in solitude, I get rid of my scaffolding. No friends to talk with, no telephone calls to make, no meetings to attend, no music to entertain, no books to distract, just me, naked, vulnerable, weak, sinful, deprived, and broken. Nothing. If your identity is shaped and affirmed in relationship to the people around you, what happens when you're alone? Who are you when you're by yourself? And I don't mean just like introvert alone. Some of us are going, man, I would kill to be alone more often, right? Like, I love it when I'm alone. But not, not like that, like really alone. I sometimes take retreats to a uh, Christian retreat center in North Spokane, and they have these little cabins in the woods, and I, it's, it's great. But one of the things that bugs me is they all have Wi-Fi, and they all have TVs with like a cabinet full of DVDs, and it's my own, you know, I have to exercise some willpower. But like, if I want to be alone, those things aren't really helping me to be alone. Those things are bringing the world back into that little cabin. And sometimes when we think we're alone, I just want to be home alone with a cup of tea and a good book. I want to be quiet with the hobby that I enjoy. That's not really the kind of solitude that we're talking about. Jesus is sent out into the desert to practice silence and solitude is to get truly alone, away from your phone and Netflix and toys and games and books and to just sit with yourself. So Jesus is sent out into the wilderness directly after this pronouncement of his identity to grapple with this identity alone with God. And this is where the comparison breaks down a little bit because Jesus isn't insecure in his identity. He is perfect. He is the son of God. He always has been. He knows what his calling is. He's not battling a false identity. But we do see his identity challenged in the wilderness. In Matthew's account of this 
story we read, then Jesus was led up by the spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. The devil says, if this is who you really are, prove it. Satan shows up to challenge Jesus to get external affirmation of his identity. Is Jesus' identity secure in relationship to the Father alone? Or will he be baited by the devil into having it affirmed externally? Will he show off his ability to make bread in order to be affirmed by Satan? Can you imagine how that would feel? You know what it feels like to just own somebody? I remember when I was in elementary school, I had a friend who was my age, and he had an older brother that was in junior high. And um, this older brother had some friends over, and we we're all at this at my buddy's house. And they had all of these like riddles that they had got from somewhere. Like one of them was, um, if a rooster lays an egg on the top of a roof, which way will it roll? And, and you're supposed to go. Roosters don't lay eggs, right? They're a little tricky. And I remember these middle schoolers who thought they were so smart were like, uh, what color is a platypus's egg? And I went, I don't know, what color is it? And then they went, platypuses are mammals, they don't lay eggs. And I said, well, yeah, yeah, they do. They're one of two mammals that actually do lay eggs. And, and these middle schoolers who were older than me were like speechless, And I felt so good. Like, I am way smarter than you guys. Felt great. Satan says, hey, if you're the son of God, just make bread. What would it have felt like to go like, okay, I will. I will prove to you who I am, dummy. Jesus could have 100% turned those stones into bread. But he doesn't do that. His identity is safe, and it is defined by his father not by the demands of Satan. So Jesus is a, a different case, but what is the test of our identity in the wilderness? It's, it actually turns out to be very similar. Our identity is going to be questioned. Are we going to have it defined by God, or do we need the demands of others in order to affirm who we are? When you are all alone, when you, and when you spend enough time there, you begin to recognize that the only identity that you have left is the one that God gives you. All the other secondary identities that you take on don't have any fuel any longer. Your work identities, your home identities, your online identities, they can't feed your sense of self anymore. And if your identity isn't grounded deeply in Christ, this becomes very uncomfortable. And this is why most of us never spend significant time in real silence and solitude. Because being faced with our stripped-down selves becomes unbearable. The world around us is really good about keeping us from ever getting close to that feeling. There's always something to do, something to watch or read or listen to, something that distracts us from our naked selves. And we've figured out how to numb ourselves from that discomfort. 
Tim Keller says, if we give priority to our outer life, our inner life will be dark and scary. We will not know what to do with solitude. We will be deeply uncomfortable with self-examination, and we will have an increasingly short attention span for any kind of reflection. Even more seriously, our lives will lack integrity. Outwardly, we will need to project confidence, spiritual and emotional health and wholeness, while inwardly, we may be filled with self-doubts, anxieties, self-pity, and old grudges. Yet we won't know how to go into the inner rooms of the heart, see clearly what is there, and deal with it. In short, unless we put a priority on the inner life, we, will, we turn ourselves into hypocrites. I think in a previous age, it was assumed that people would spend enough time in this state of solitude that they would realize this identity crisis that we are all in. Uh, there's something called the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a... Um, was written in 1563, and it's a question and answer style booklet designed to teach children and new Christians the doctrines of the faith. And the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism is, what is your only comfort in life and death? See, the authors assume that we are uncomfortable in both life and death, don't they? Like, that's just built into the question. You are uncomfortable. We, that we would be people that feel a strong desire to live, but also a deep frustration at life. What is your only comfort? in life and death. And the answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. See, the Heidelberg Catechism says that the only way that we are going to resolve the tension of our identity is by giving ourselves completely over to Christ. And having our self-understanding firmly grounded in Christ is a key to our spiritual transformation. And I think this is one of our biggest challenges in the church. And, and not just the church in America or whatever, but like in this church, among all of us, that we don't actually believe that. We don't actually believe that we belong to Christ. We say we do because that's the right answer. But deep down in our souls, by the way we live our lives, we betray that we actually don't believe it. I say this um, this line by Neil Anderson often, but he writes in, in his book, uh, um, what's his book called? I forget, doesn't matter. Um, but he says, who I am in Christ, I am accepted, I am secure, I am significant. I am accepted, I am secure, I am significant. And on the surface of our busy lives, we go, yeah, 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 yeah that's fine. That's true, I believe that. I prayed that prayer. I, I belong to the church. I'm a Christian. I know that. But in the deepest parts of our soul, if we ever let ourselves experience ourselves in solitude, I think many of us, maybe most of us, recognize that we don't really believe those things. And that flows out into the way we live the rest of our lives. This is the constant message that I find myself sharing with people that I'm having counseling conversations with. 
This is the constant message that I tell to myself. We must believe this if we're gonna be transformed by the gospel. And this is the gateway into the Christian faith for anyone who is not a follower of Christ. You are separated him by your sin, but you are loved deeply by God. You matter to God enough that he would sacrifice his son on the cross to pay for your sins and save you from death and hell. And has invited you to be transformed, made new. And the sad thing is many of us who are Christians, we we believe that message, we rejoice in that message, we accept that message, and then we forget it. And we don't live our lives bound up in our identity in Christ. Henry Nouwen again says, we must be made aware of the call to let our false compulsive self be transformed into the new self of Jesus Christ. Solitude is the furnace in which this transformation takes place. Silence and solitude clarifies our identity. Second thing I think it does is it amplifies temptation. Look back at Mark chapter one and verse 13. We read, he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. In addition to our basic identity being questioned in silence and solitude, something more direct happens. We experience temptation of all kinds. Sometimes at an intensity that is surprising when it happens. If silence allows your mind space to hear God's voice more clearly, it also allows you to hear the enemy's voice more clearly. There's another quote from Henry Now, and I love this one. As soon as I decide to stay in my solitude, confusing ideas, disturbing images, wild fantasies, and weird associations jump about in my mind like monkeys in a banana tree. Have you ever experienced this? Just want to get quiet before the Lord and focus. And then I've got laundry to do. Or I wonder, wonder what's on sale at the grocery store this week. Or I, I should probably get my tires rotated. Where does that come from? I haven't thought about that ever in my life, except now when I'm trying to focus, when I'm trying to be quiet before the Lord. Additionally, Uh, says Theodora, one of the desert mothers in 400 AD. She says, you should realize that as soon as you intend to practice silence, at once evil comes and weighs down your soul through acedia, which is a sense of boredom, faint-heartedness, and evil thoughts. If you ever go on a silent retreat and, and spend significant time getting quiet before the Lord, you've probably experienced this. You seem to be attacked by all of these ideas and and things and sinful temptations that maybe you never think about on a normal day. Why does this happen? I think it's because the dark parts of your soul that you are too busy and distracted normally to pay attention to all of a sudden come rushing up into your conscious mind. Think of it this way. Maybe this is a stupid analogy, but think of a spaceship with two compartments in it out in space. And in the upper compartment is all the things that your life has to do with, your work and your marriage and your kids and all your responsibilities, and they're always going. And in the space below is stuff that you just, you don't think about, you don't talk about. And those two spaces are connected, but they're kind of at equilibrium with each other until you open the door in the top capsule and all of the stuff that you normally do flies out into space. You shut the door real quick, but now there's a vacuum up there. And all the stuff that's below comes sucked up into the forefront. 
It was there the whole time, but now it's all you have to look at. Tim Keller again says, the things you daydream about in your spare time are often the things that have captured your imagination, and so are the things you serve. Jesus seems to agree in Matthew 15, don't you realize that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart, and this defiles a person. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, and slander. Many of us are very good at keeping those dark things in the dark. We're very respectable people. And we go about our lives being respectable in a lot of ways. And it's not until we take our normal routines and set them aside and are alone with our thoughts that we actually have the space to see what's down there. Now, again, our comparison to Jesus doesn't quite work here because he is sinless and pure, but it doesn't stop the devil from attacking him. So how much more will we be attacked through the real darkness in our own hearts as the enemy points it out to us? How much more will he try to leverage the broken parts of our souls when we experience them this way? This is a real selling point for silence and solitude, isn't it? <laughs> why, would, why would I want to do this? <laughs> so I have, an, I have an example here of why you might want to do this. And it's, man, God is so good in his, the way he works. You guys hear the, my microphone ringing? It's super annoying. If you all weren't here right now, what Greg would do is he would crank it up really loud and he would have a, a, a graph on his mixer and the frequency that's causing that ringing would get louder and louder and louder and he'd see it really clearly and then he'd know exactly what to turn down. It's called ringing out a room and it's what you do before everyone gets here because it's super annoying. But you can't tell what frequency is making that noise unless you make it louder. You're never gonna be able to see it and isolate it and get rid of it if you don't amplify it. And the noise of our lives gets in the way of actually seeing the deeper parts of our hearts. And God in his grace gives us this discipline to amplify those things, to bring them to the forefront so that we might bring them to Jesus and be healed from them. And this is why our temptations being amplified in silence and solitude is a good thing. The third thing that I think silence and solitude does for us is it brings rejuvenation to us. In the last part of our passage this morning, Mark 1.13 says, he was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. There's a couple ways to understand this. Throughout the prophets, wild animals are seen in the wilderness as signs of desolation and curse. In Isaiah 13, we read that Babylon, the jewel of the kingdoms, the glory of the pride of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation. A nomad will not pitch his tent there and shepherds will not let their flocks rest there but desert creatures will lie down there and owls will fill the houses. Ostriches will dwell there and wild goats will leap about. Hyenas will howl in the fortresses and jackals in the luxurious palaces. Babylon's time is almost up. Her days are almost 
over. So there is this undercurrent all throughout the Old Testament prophets of the wild animals being dangerous, signs of judgment. Jesus is out in the wilderness, a place of danger and curse. But I actually think something else is going on here. I think it matters that Mark says that Jesus is with the wild animals. What I think this brings to mind is actually the Garden of Eden. When all the wild animals came to Adam to be given names, not desolation and curse, but safety and life and authority and purpose. Eden is this place where everything is right in the world and God and the human beings are living together in a perfect relationship. And I think this image is intended by Mark to point back to Jesus as being the one true Adam who lives in peace and harmony with God. And I think it's connected to this line about the angels serving him. This place of silence and solitude for Jesus becomes the place where the father meets the son in rest and rejuvenation. Jesus receives spiritual comfort and communion with his father when he is in solitude. Now, this isn't the only context that we can hear God's voice. I'm sure many of us, maybe all of us, have stories of hearing God speak to us in noisy situations, maybe through the noise even. But silence is a significant one. Getting alone with the Lord to hear his voice matters. In fact, this is how Jesus loves his own people. In Mark 6, we read the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. They had just got back from this mission trip and they were super excited about it. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. For many people were coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. So they went away in a boat by themselves to a remote place. So Jesus invites his friends, the ones that he loves, his disciples away from it all to just spend time alone with him. Jesus models his relationship with the ones that he loves on the relationship that he has with his father. Come away with me. Let's get alone together. Because the best relational work is done in solitude. My wife and I like to take road trips to the Washington coast. And we don't do it enough. But when we get a chance to, they're some of the best times that we have to connect with one another. But if you talk to my wife, she will tell you that the best relational connection she has with me is about three days in. Because it takes that long for all of everything to just kind of slough off of my soul to where I can be totally present. That's a character flaw that I'm working on, <laughs> being faster at that. But, but it takes a while for the weight of everything to sort of just peel away. And I think the same thing happens when we allow ourselves extended time away with God. When we remove the noise and the distractions of our busy lives, we begin to hear God speak more clearly. We experience his love and it becomes rejuvenating to our souls. So silence and solitude as a discipline, it, it clarifies our identity. It, it, answers, it helps us see the, the answer to the question, who are you? It amplifies temptation. It brings to bear the things, the dark parts of our soul that we aren't paying attention to. And it is a major opportunity for us to go grow closer with Lord and to be rejuvenated. So how might we practice this discipline? And I would say it like this. We should practice it a little and we should practice it a lot. A little. We should, we should be people that intentionally spend time 
as part of our regular spiritual practice in silence, in solitude. The way I work this out is if, if, I am, um, if I'm on the ball with my prayer routine in the morning, and I'm not always, but if I am, part of it includes just a, setting a 10-minute timer on my phone and sitting in silence before the Lord, listening for his voice, trying to be present to how he's speaking to me. That's not the only thing I do. I'm also praying out loud and I'm reading the scriptures and, and practicing other disciplines. But that moment of practicing just being present with the Lord is incredibly rejuvenating and helpful. And 10 minutes, like I didn't start there. At the beginning, like one minute, if you're not used to practicing silence, one minute takes a long time. I mean, we, we sat in silence for one minute this morning. It was weird. But allowing yourself time to practice this discipline and grow in it, you can spend more and more time in silence before the Lord. And this dovetails with some of the things we've talked about with meditative prayer from a few weeks ago. When I'm in the car, I'm a big, I'm a big podcast person. I love podcasts. I probably have 20 subscribed on my phone and I just kind of go through them. And sometimes that's not a good thing. Sometimes time in the car is a great opportunity to be silent with the Lord, to be alone with God and to hear his voice. Sometimes what I need is I need to turn off those things and just focus on being present with Jesus. I still have to keep my eyes open and drive. Don't stop doing that. But I recognize in my own self a tendency to self-medicate, to ignore my emotions, to ignore my spirit through these sort of things that aren't bad things. Here's an example. On, on Friday, um, we, uh, long story, had to rehome our dog. And I, <laughs> I drew the short straw. I was the one that had to drop the dog off at his new home. And so me and our dog drove to North Spokane uh, to the family who was going to take him. And it was about 45 minutes away and did that, dropped him off. Very sad. Um, much more difficult than I would li- have liked it to have been. And I got in the car and drove away and immediately turned on a political podcast because surely that's the most important thing. And it was about 30 seconds and I went, you know what? This is not good for me. This is what I want right now. I want to be distracted by national politics. But what I need is I need to be silent before the Lord. I had to turn it off. And I drove the rest of the way home praying and listening, being present to what I was feeling. And the thing is, our, our culture, our, our busyness, the way we live our lives gives us every opportunity to never be alone with ourselves. And we have to fight for it. Henry now and again says, we have indeed to fashion our own desert where we can withdraw every day, shake off our compulsions and dwell in the gentle healing presence of our Lord. 
And so my encouragement for practicing this discipline would be to find a little bit of time every day to just sit silently before the Lord. And it might just be a couple minutes. But even that will be of spiritual benefit. And then I would say practice silence and solitude a lot. Plan a time to get away. Make a, make a plan for like a full eight-hour retreat or even a few days. Find a space where there's no TV or internet or work or phone. Just bring you and your Bible and maybe a notebook to write down your thoughts. And if you do this, and if you've done this, you know that you will immediately be bored out of your mind. We are so accustomed to input all the time. Turn some music on. Watch the TV. Scroll on your phone. But in that boredom, lean into that because that's good. Spend some time praying, listening, reading the scriptures. Spending time in silence and solitude is like jumping in the lake. Initially, it's cold and you, it, you you gasp for air because it's so shocking. But you kind of acclimate to it. You get used to it. And the more that you do it, the more time you spend in it, the more, the sweeter it'll be. Begin to incorporate other disciplines with time away. Sometimes when I practice this discipline, I, I fast, we've talked about. Or I will, I will pray, I will sing. But go into an extended period of period of solitude, expecting that God will make his presence known to you. James says in James 4, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Uh, Pastor Austin Phelps, the 1800s said, it has been said that no great work in literature or in science was ever wrought by a man who did not love solitude. We may lay it down as an elemental principle of religion that no large growth in holiness was ever gained by one who did not take time be often long alone with God. And I know that long periods of solitude with God are hard to come by with the pace that we live our lives. Maybe you're, you are immediately thinking like, there's no way I could do that. I don't have any time for that. Uh, these 18 factors of my world prohibit that from being even possible. But I would just encourage you to get creative what, what are the things that need to change in order to experience time alone with God, even small time alone with God? One more nugget from now in. Silence, or solitude, silence, and prayer allow us to save ourselves and others from the shipwreck of our self-destructive society. The temptation is to go mad with those who are mad and to go around yelling and screaming, telling everyone where to go, what to do, and how to behave. The temptation is to become so involved with the agonies and ecstasies of the last days that we will drown together with those we are trying to save. Being people who can be present to a situation means that we are present to the Lord. And silence and solitude is how we exercise those muscles so that we can go out into the world and love people. We're called to be filled with God's resources on mission as lights in the world for his purposes. And as we practice this discipline of silence and solitude, that's the place where we will be filled with those resources for that service.
You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.